All right. Well, thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship and song this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Amos. We want to re-engage with our series on the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are listed for you in your scriptures, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos. So it's the third from the top of the minor prophets. And so we have been working our way through a study And I think this is our eighth minor prophet. My plan is to, by the end of May, finish out the minor prophets, and then uh, we will begin in June to look at the Gospel of John. So if you'd like to read ahead, that would be great. But today we want to consider the, the book of Amos. The book of Amos is uh, one of the longer minor prophets. It's nine chapters in length in our English Bibles, but it, but it has a rather narrow focus that I think we'll see today. So like many of the other minor prophets that we've studied together as a church, at the heart of this book's instruction is the great concern over the lack of recognition of sin. And although we've seen this repeatedly with the obstinance of the people and the leaders of Israel and, and Judah and their enemies, God has included all of these accounts in his word because this is a universal problem. All throughout the ages, people have seemed to be really good at pointing out or seeing the sin of, of others, the failure of others, but these same people always seem to get a little squeamish when they're confronted with the specific sin in their own lives. And I think we could all attest to this, right? We've all probably have done that before. We, we're real good. Our eyes are real clear as we look at the sin of others, but they get a little murky. The glasses kind of fog up a little bit when it's time to look at our own sin And maybe it's our own defense mechanism, but it seems that we're really good at minimizing our own sin, but at the same time, we're equally good at maximizing the sin of others. It's almost like we have this this spiritual disease that we we refuse to seek treatment for. When I was uh, uh, a younger parent, the kids were young, I got what's called as Bell's palsy. Some of you have had that. Some of you know what that is. Um, it's essentially a paralyzation of the face, facial muscles on uh, one side of your face. Well, it was Christmas Day, and I started to notice this drooping on the left side of my face. So I knew something was wrong, but I didn't want to ruin everyone's Christmas, so I didn't say anything. So it wasn't too long, though, that Kathy and the kids started to notice that I was starting to look real funny, and so Kathy took me to the hospital. So they saw me, they, uh, they ruled out some things like stroke and other things, and they diagnosed me with Bell's palsy. And so they sent me home with orders to do these facial exercises, and then I was to begin to take these heavy doses of the prednisone steroid that they had prescribed, and they said, in weeks, hopefully, uh, your face will respond and you'll, you'll come back to normal. Well, I look back on that, and I was just going to wing it. Like, I wasn't going to go to the hospital at all. I was just going to kind of write it out and see what it was. Uh, But Kathy was real diligent in telling me, we need to get you to the hospital. So we did. We went and we got the 
the treatment. But after all this was over, it was six weeks that my face finally came back to whatever normal is, right? It came back, and uh, I went back into my doctor again because I started to get the same symptoms on the right side of my face. And so I went from getting this Bell's palsy on the left side of my face to getting it then on the right side of my face. And so I had a long consultation with some experts about Bell's palsy, and they said that if I had somehow waited any longer or refused treatment, uh, this could have been a permanent paralysis on both sides of my face. And so that was a little bit of a wake-up call for me in a physical way. But I think when we think about uh, from a spiritual perspective, once we show symptoms of growing sin in our lives, in other words, once our sin is is recognized and it's even diagnosed, then we must seek corrective treatment. And we find God's prescribed treatment for our sin in His Word. And Amos will point, it will help to point us in the right direction with this today as we look at this book. And so we're going to try to go through it. Again, it's nine chapters in length, so obviously we're not going to read the whole thing, but I think you'll get the, 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 the breadth of it today as we begin to march our way through. We want to begin by taking a look at the author of this book, Good Place to Start. We see this here in verse 1 of chapter 1, that the author is the prophet Amos. See verse 1 there of chapter 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So the earthquake that he's referring to there is this massive earthquake that took place in 755 B.C. But we find here that Amos is not a priest. He's not a high-profile person in Judaism. He's a shepherd. And later in the book, we find that he's a fruit picker. He's from the Judean village of Tekoa. Tekoa was a small village about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, and so Amos lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, but as we're going to see today, his ministry is primarily directed at the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Amos' profile and resume is not all that impressive. (laughs) He doesn't come from a wealthy family. He doesn't have any formal education. He doesn't have a high-profile occupation. He picks figs off of fig trees, and he shepherds sheep. But what we do know about Amos, and it's very clear as we read this account today, Amos was a man, simple as though he may be, he was a man who loved his God, and he was willing to serve him in any way that he could. An unusual pick for a prophet But Amos just wanted to be used by God. God, whatever it is that comes my way, whatever it is that you want me to do, I am willing to do that. And I I think some of that's lost today, to be honest with you. No, we don't believe that God comes and taps us on the shoulder and, and says, I want you to do this or I want you to do that. But we have so many opportunities to serve and to minister to other people. And I think oftentimes we get so caught up in life that we just... mm, there's so many opportunities. Well, we'll get the next one. There's so many opportunities. Well, well, we'll catch you down the road. The thing that I've loved about the prophets 
the minor prophets, with the exception of Jonah, and we know he had his issues, but the minor prophets, these were guys that had a hard job. I mean, their job was to basically tell people that God is going to judge you in a harsh way, and it's coming, so you better clean up your act. Can you imagine? Even today, in today's climate, in our own country, can you imagine a strong voice who is telling America to straighten up? Judgment is coming upon America. Straighten up. Can you imagine how that person would be castigated, completely just just pounded for saying something like that? And this is the life of the minor prophets. Most, if not all, of the minor prophets had a specific purpose, and God had chosen them to say to people who are in sin, knock it off. The God of the universe recognizes your sin. He ain't playing. Judgment is coming And so all throughout the Scriptures, we find that God uses all kinds of people from all different kinds of backgrounds. But if you notice, He seems to gravitate toward and especially use those who are from a humble lineage or a humble background. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. You know the passage. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to, no, to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, God's looking for people to bring Him glory and to serve Him with a pure heart that will boast in Him and not in themselves. And I've often thought that God intentionally chooses to use those of us who are not all that special in the eyes of the world. Why? Because it shows the power of God that He can use anyone to accomplish His purposes. And so Amos' ministry took place during the mid-8th century while Jeroboam II reigned over Israel. Uzziah was reigning over Judah. Amos was a contemporary of Jonah and Hosea and Isaiah. And these were interesting days. These were interesting days because Israel was seemingly prospering in ways that they hadn't since the days when Solomon had served as king. And so by all appearances, Israel was doing well. And so you can imagine that Amos' message of impending doom and and captivity for Israel landed like a big thud in the ears of the people. And so Amos was unpopular. He not only had an unpopular uh, statement that he was to make to the people of Israel and the surrounding nations, but he himself was unpopular because of the message that he was to deliver. And so for the most part, initially, he was ignored Who is this guy? He's a shepherd. He picks figs off of fig trees. We're not going to listen to this guy. 
But he says, no, I'm a prophet of God, and I have a message from God, and God is going to rain down his judgment on you because of your sin. Knock it off. (laughs) They're like, go pick some figs. Go shepherd some sheep. They didn't really care much about what Amos had to say. Well, as we're going to see today, the theme of the book of Amos is justice for all. Justice for all. And so if, there, if we learn anything from this book, it's that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of nations. And we should not be either. And the people of Israel should have known that because this was a message that was delivered to them by Moses as he received it from the Lord. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 says, You shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not show partiality to the poor, nor give preference to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. In other words, justice for all. We're all the same in the eyes of God. And there's a beauty to that, I think. There's a beauty to that. I have had the privilege, I don't know why, but God has allowed me to meet what this world would call famous people. And so I've been around a lot of famous people. Primarily when I was working in government, somehow the governor's office thought, well, we'll, we'll choose him to be the guy that shepherds or chaperones dignitaries as they come into the state. And so I got to spend time with all kinds of people that our world would say, these guys are famous. You got to shake the hand of that person. You got to shake the hand of that person. You got to walk around and talk with that person. And while people think that, and I guess in the eyes of the world that would sort of be the case, but I've never really been that way. I've always kind of looked at everyone the same. They're the same as me. You know the old saying, they put their their pants on the same way that I do, right? And so I never really thought that way about people. Yes, we're to have respect for people that are in high positions, and we should do that. The Scriptures teach that. I've been able to speak with presidents and hang out with presidents and governors and actors and athletes and all kinds of musicians and all these kinds of things. We look at the Scripture and God ain't impressed. He ain't impressed with any of that. He's not impressed with someone who makes $10 million a year, $100 million a year, a a billion dollars a year, or some guy that's barely getting by. This guy is barely squeezing some pennies out to be able to provide for his family. God looks at them and at them in the same way. They're children of his, created by him. They have an obligation to him, and they have an obligation to one another. So he says in Leviticus 19 and verse 15, you're not to show partiality, not on the basis of somebody who's wealthy or not wealthy or giving preference to the poor over those who are rich. No, none of it. Justice for all. We're all the same in the eyes of God. Well, as we've learned throughout our study of the minor prophets, there's, a, there's great significance in the meaning of the names of the prophets. And this has been one of the nuggets that I've really enjoyed as I've gone through these studies. Amos's name means burden or one who is burdened. 
And so as we go through this, we're going to see, it's not going to take us long to see the great burden that Amos has or had for the marginalized and those who had no voice. And so I've broken down this book into three major sections, as you can see in your notes, which I think is going to help us see that God is not a respecter of persons. His law and justice apply to everyone equally, and his expectations are the same for every person and every nation. And as I said, there's a beauty to that. There's a beauty to that. So let's dive in today, take a look at this. Um, and as we do, we're going we're gonna to see three actions that show that God is not a respecter of persons. And the first action is that, that God is God's equal concern for the nations. God's equal concern for the nations. So here in chapter 1 and verse 3, through chapter 2 and verse 3, we find great concern for the enemies of Israel. And they had a lot of enemies. Amos names them here. He puts on notice six different enemies of Israel. And he names them here specifically. He names Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Notice here in verse 2, it says that the Lord roars in disgust against these six nations who try to persecute his people and do not walk with him. Look at verse 2. He said, the Lord roars from Zion. And from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherds pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. And then Amos records this pattern uh, in the Lord's indictment of these nations. And I want to point this out to you. Each time he addresses these nations, there's six of them here, he says each time for three transgressions, of whatever nation he's addressing, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Which means that his coming punishment of these nations, and he's going to include Israel and Judah here in a moment, but his coming punishment is going to be more than they can imagine. More than they can imagine. It's like going to grandma's house. And grandma says, would you like a piece of cake? You don't want to offend grandma, you're on a diet, but you say, yeah, I'll have a little small piece. And you know grandma. Grandma brings out a slab of cake on a plate and hands it to you. That's what this is like. Their punishment's going to be way more than what they think or expect. And I want to show you one of these. So look at verse 6. Uh, through verse 8, it, it relates to Gaza, and this was the prominent city in Philistia. So this is where the Philistines came from, okay? So Gaza here, verse 6, so he addresses Gaza. He says, thus says the Lord, so this is from God, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. So he says it that way in each of these indictments. Because then he begins to explain, they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. And so I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels, and I will also cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, 
I will even unleash my power upon Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord your God. And so he's, he's calling out these six nations. And the people of Israel are like, you go, Amos. Call them out. Tell them what's wrong. And so the people of Israel and Judah, they loved him calling out their rotten enemies for their sin. But when it starts to get real, in chapters 2, verses 4 and 5, Amos begins to call out concern for the southern kingdom of Judah, where he is from. So look at chapter 2 and verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke its punishment, but they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them to astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem." So he's including them all. Not just the enemies of Israel, but Judah, where he's from. And then in verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2 here, he calls out concern for the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, Israel liked it when he was railing on their enemies. But now, Amos includes them in God's disgust over their sin and their wickedness. So all the nations... (laughs) All the nations have raised the ire of God. And honestly, I, I think we can be like that as well. We, we don't mind as much when the sin of others is being pointed out. In fact, we're, we're appalled, aren't we, at other people's sin. But we get rather defensive when our own sin comes into the equation. It's kind of like the preacher who's pointing out the sin of drunkenness, and all the people are yelling, amen, amen to that. And then he begins to preach on the sin of stealing, and all the the people shout, preach it. But when the preacher turns his attention to the sin of gossip, the auditorium gets real quiet. You see, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Sin is sin. Each of these different nations had their own pet sins, and because of that, none of them were walking with God. And you know this, when we think of sin, there are sins of commission, right? Sins we commit. And there are sins of omission, sins that we omit, James 4.17 says, So for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. And so a sin of omission is a sin that results from us not doing something that we know is right, something that God's Word teaches that we should do. It's different than the sin of commission, a sin that a person actively commits violating the direct revealed word of God. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul, who was just like us in many, many ways, addresses both of these types of sin back in Romans chapter 7. So I want to go back there. I haven't thought about this in a long time, just to be honest with you. I haven't thought about 
how disgusted God is with sins of omission. We all know that he's disgusted with sins of commission, right? Thou shalt not steal. Well, if you steal, then you're directly violating the word of God, right? You should not lie. But if we lie, we realize we are committing a sin against God. And so I think we get that part of it. I think we get the commission part of it, the commission part of it. I think we should, at least. Most of us know the Bible. We've been around the church for quite some time. We, we get it to a degree. Sin of commission, committing sin against God or another person. But what I haven't thought about in a long time are sins of omission. And I think this is our, this is our problem in most cases. We get all that. We know all that. But the sin of omission is something that Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. So he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, we know the story of Paul and his conversion and all that, right? We know that God chose him as an apostle. We know all that. We know how God used him in a mighty way. We know all that. We know that he was the greatest missionary to ever live. We, we know all that. But what we forget sometimes is he was a normal guy just like us. And he struggled with sin. God used him, but he struggled mightily with sin. He says, I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Been there? But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So you know Romans 7, moving into Romans 8. And this is a discussion about this great war that goes on in the life of every believer between the spirit and the flesh. And this battle over pleasing the flesh and sin and all of these kinds of things. It gets a lot more explicit as you go and you continue to read what Paul has written there. But he, he basically is saying that he struggles with both. He struggles with both. He, he struggles with the sin of commission, and he struggles with the sin of omission. He does what he doesn't want to do, and he knows is wrong, the sin of commission, but he also doesn't do what he knows he should do and really wants to do, which is the sin of omission. So both Israel and Judah knew the law of God, but they chose not to obey and in their disobedience, they actively sinned against God over and over and over again. And again, I think we get it with the commission part, committing sin. We know that. We can see that, right? So when we watch a person commit sin, we see it. But when they're not visually in our mind's eye committing sin, 
they are not doing things they should be doing, those are harder to see. This is where we have the great cover-up in Christianity. It's the great cover-up where we can cover up it's almost a form of legalism where we can keep the rules that people can see, right? We can keep the rules. That way nobody can indict us. Oh, I saw you doing this. Mm. We go underground, undercover, and we're good at excuse making. Why aren't you regularly coming to church? You know what the Bible says, that you're not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You know what Scripture says. Well, I got this, and I got that. And we try to rehearse something that sounds noble so that we don't have to come and be a part of the church gathered. Sin of omission. We could go on and on and on with this. I was, uh, Saturday nights, I don't sleep that well. And so I was sitting there thinking about all the sins of omission in my own life and in the life of other people. And I was getting like seven, eight, nine big ones. Big ones. So we think about that, don't we? We think about committing sin, but we, we, we don't think as much about, a, like, why why don't we, we know that we are to, to be sacrificially giving to the church, but no one's going to know if we don't. Well, maybe one person who counts the offering, but no one else is going to know. No one else is going to know. You see how insidious the sins of omission are? Think about it. Think about it. Well, the second action that we find here is God's equal condemnation for the nations. And we see this here, and this is a big chunk as we go back to uh, the book of Amos. It's a big chunk. Uh, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6 and verse 14. And so God's equal condemnation for the nations. First, we see uh, it's for the sin of reckless choices. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. So he's speaking directly here to the nation of Israel, but his disgust over sin applies to all the nations. Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. To whom much is given, much is required. And this principle, I believe, can be used in so many aspects because everything we have is from God, right? We think of the tangible things, right? We always think of the tangible. Well, God has blessed me financially so that I have a responsibility to be generous with what he has given to me. And that's true. But this isn't just about physical things or money. This is about giftedness. This is about burden, where we have a burden for other people and other things. We've been given the burden, but we don't act on it. To whom much is given, much is required. 
I've talked to some people and they say, you know, I, I don't have any talent. Seriously, Pastor Dave, I am I'm void of talent. I have no talent. I look around and I see all these people that are so talented and I have nothing. Well, you may not be talented in visual things, but God has given you a gift to use within the body of Christ. Everyone has been given a gift that possesses the Spirit of God to use within the body of Christ. And so we should be actively, eagerly trying to serve You know, the people of Israel knew better. They were the chosen people of God. God had given them special treatment, special favor, special access to Him, but they took it all for granted. To whom much is given, much is required. I I think of us here in America. We've been given so much by God. He's blessed our nation in so many ways, but, but look at where our nation is headed Our nation is in a dizzying spiral downward. I think of Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Notice the similarities here between Israel and our country as we continue here. So we find God's equal condemnation for the nations. Justice for all. For, for the sin of reckless choices. Now second, for the sin of rank idolatry. For the sin of rank idolatry. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, uh, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks, and you will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will cast, be cast to harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress, and Gilgal multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. And then third, we see God's equal condemnation for the nations for the sin of righteous neglect. And we see this from chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 6. Chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Seek me that you may live. Chapter 5 and verse 6 says, Seek the Lord that you may live. Look at verse 4 of of Amos 5. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. But do not resort to Bethel, and do not come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity, and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth." Amos is burdened with all the injustices that he sees in Israel. The poor are oppressed. The less privileged are pushed aside. There's injustice throughout the land. Amos says it's like wormwood, which was known for having such a a bitter taste. Notice here more of the description that Amos gives concerning the injustices in Israel. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. 
They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. For I know your transgressions are, are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. Verse 13, therefore at such time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He's pleading with them. He's pleading with the people of Israel. This is, all st- this is all happening while they're prospering in big ways, right? I said earlier that th- they had not seen this kind of, of uh, sort of financial uh, wealth and all these kinds of things since the time of Solomon. Everything is going well, humanly speaking, physically, spiritually, they're rotting away. Amos is trying to plead with them, isn't he? He's trying to say, look, it's time to stop. God sees it. He sent me to come and to tell you that he sees it. He knows it. Stop. Repent of your sin. But as we've seen, the nation of Israel, thick-headed. And we can be that way. We can be that way. It's almost like we have to be knocked down for us to get it. And so Amos is the voice of God talking about God's equal condemnation for the nations and all of you must repent. The third action of God's equal is God's equal cure for the nations. And we see this here in chapter 7 through chapter 9 in verse 15. So this is, this is a, it's a neat ending here. And so uh, before he gets to God's ultimate cure, he lays out five visions, okay? So he's laying out these visions. There's the vision of locusts in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. There's the vision of fire in chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. There's the vision of the plumb line in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, There's the vision of the fruit basket in chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. And then there's this vision of the altar in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. But I I picked one of these that I want to look at a little bit closer with you. It's the vision of the plumb line. It's the vision of the plumb line. It's chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Look at this. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So a plumb line, 
most of us know what a plumb line is. It's a string with a weight on the end that's dangled to get a perfect vertical line, right? So the purpose of this vision was to show that the ways of Israel were crooked. God's moral law is the plumb line by which we determine right and wrong. And God will go to great lengths to show man his sin and how much he is disgusted by it. It isn't until the last five verses in this book that Amos speaks of hope, future restoration. So go to the end of the book. Sometimes we have to wait to the end for reading something. We have to wait to the end to find out what's really going to happen. So Amos is laying it on him. God has given him this, this word to speak to the nations. He does that. He's given him this word to speak to his people, Israel, both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and he does that. And so now we find that God is not yet done with Israel In verses 11 through 15, Amos begins to speak of future restoration. Look at verse 11. In that day, speaking of the time of restoration, in that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given to you, says the Lord. And I emphasize the word land there because I think this is a clear reference to the coming kingdom of Jesus, the coming millennial kingdom where Jesus will sit on the throne of David and all of the land promises made to Abraham will be fulfilled. So what are the major takeaways from the book of Amos? Well, first, I think we would be remiss not to state that God uses everyday people to accomplish His purposes. That's His plan, and that's what we see in real life. He uses people, common people like us, to accomplish what He wants to happen and I think about that, it's, it's a blessing, isn't it, to be used by God in any way. Doesn't it make you feel like you've contributed something when, when you, you have that person at work who's really struggling with things, and you say, let me share with you a little bit about my God. And you're able to share with that person, and you're able to, to talk to that person about their need for Christ, and then you leave there and you think, God, thank you for, for allowing me to do that. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yes, we're to take the opportunities that come our way, but God brought that. And it makes us feel like, wow, God will use even someone like me to do something 
for him that matters. Something that matters. So God uses everyday people to accomplish his purposes. Our job is just to be willing to serve when given the opportunity. Second, God never turns a blind eye to sin, and neither should we. It's only as we recognize our sin that we can confess it before God and seek to never do it again. So our radar should be up all the time. Not for other people, but for ourselves. Are we sinning? Are we committing sin? Are we omitting things that we should be doing? And we know ourselves the best, right? Don't fool yourself. Don't allow for you to tell yourself that you're doing wonderful, splendidly. We all have room to improve. God never turns a blind eye to sin, and neither should we. And then third, God is not a respecter of persons, and neither should we be a respecter of persons. And so, you know, this is spoken of in great detail in James chapter 2. And so turn there as we finish things out today. James chapter 2. James, the half-brother of Jesus, addresses this in a, in a big way, and it's in the context of the church, which I think is helpful for us so that we can sort of apply it in a good way. So James chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, "'My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism.'" For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, right? There's two great commandments. The great commandment is that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. We shall love our neighbor as ourself. So think about it. Would you want someone to do that to you? If you went into an auditorium, his, his example here, and you weren't dressed like the rest of the people, and so they shun you and they push you off to the corner, or they make you sit somewhere where no one will see you, we're to love our neighbor as ourself. But if you show partiality, verse 9, you are committing sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, 
For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Justice for all. That's essentially what he's saying. We're all the same. And I love the diversity in the body of Christ, don't you? We're not all the same. We have different interests and hobbies and different family backgrounds. Some of us come from completely different places. But we're all here. We're all here together as a church family. We have an obligation to one another. All of us. To each other. That's why I love the supper groups. The supper groups have been so great just because it's given us an opportunity for us to get to know people on a different level than maybe we would have ever had to have the opportunity for. But we're together for two or three hours and we're learning about each other's life. We're all different. We're all different. But what do we have in common? One, we're sinners. Two, we share the same God. We all got the same problem. We all struggle with the flesh. We all struggle with sin. And yet we have this amazing God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Then number four, God always keeps His promises. God always keeps His promises and He never gives up on those whom He loves. And aren't you glad for that? Oh, Don't you hate it when you disappoint God? When you sin against God? Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. And so our treasure is Christ. Not pennies, dollars. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. My grandfather would often quote this verse. We'd go over to my grandparents' house, very modest, lived on the rough side of town. They were on Social Security. They didn't have a lot. But just about every time we would go over there, my grandpa would, would pull us up onto his lap, and he would hug us, and he would give us a dollar. Or sometimes he'd even give us five dollars. You know how much money a dollar was when I was a kid? Or five dollars? We used to go down to the local uh, candy shop with a quarter and fill a bag. A dollar? That's a lot of money. This would infuriate my grandma. She would say, Joe, why are you giving those kids all of our money? And he would say, it's not our money, Gladys. Her name was Evelyn, but he called her Gladys. (laughs) It's not our money, Gladys. It's God's money. And I want to bless our grandkids. It was always a reminder for me. What an example of true contentment. We didn't have a lot. We need to be content with what we have. Generous with others. We're to have a loose grip on the things of this life. And then... He would quote Hebrews 13 and verse 5. What a promise. The Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. God's concerned about our character. And by the way, there's, there's, no, need, there's no need to try to fool God. He, he, he knows everything. 
He knows it all. He knows our motives. He knows our secret sins. He knows our heart's desires. He knows when we're faking it. He knows when we're sincere. But He wants to be the most important part of our lives. You see, that's what was missing. With all of the nations of the world, with, with Judah and with Israel, what was missing was that God was out of the equation. They were seeking contentment, fulfillment in all of the wrong places. And so God calls this fig picker, this shepherder of sheep, to go and to tell essentially the known world at the time to repent, take your sin seriously before my holy God. And I think this is the lesson for us today from the book of Amos, justice for all. And aren't you glad he treats us all the same? He didn't care. He doesn't care what car you drive. He could care less what neighborhood you live in. He doesn't care about those things. Yeah, he blessed us in some ways, in many ways. But what he cares is about is righteousness, living rightly before him. And we're so grateful that he's patient with us, aren't we? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for this lesson that we can learn from this man that you use, this obscure guy from a little small town south of Jerusalem, guy that got his hands dirty every day, guy that worked from sunup to sundown every day. You use all of us in different ways. And thank you for the faithfulness of a man like Amos, who you used to do something very, very hard and very, very difficult. And we're so glad to see the life of a man like this. Because we're soon facing difficult times. At least it appears, embolden us to be your ambassadors in this life. We thank you that you have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And I think with that, we can be good with even tribulation and difficulty and all these different things in life. It's okay. We have you. May we honor and please you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.